Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. July 1st marks the third year anniversary of USMCA, the new trade deal that regulates more than a trillion dollars of commerce between the US, Canada, and Mexico. But the three countries are not only trading partners, we actually build together. And to speak with us about the importance of abiding by USMCA as it is the backbone that provides certainty to the region, about how we're currently dealing with disagreements, and about what can be done to improve the region's competitiveness, that it is truly my pleasure to welcome Ken Smith, the former head negotiator from the Mexico side of the USMCA agreement, and Scott Miller, co-host of The Trade Guys, another CSIS podcast specializing in trade policies. Scott, Ken, welcome to Mexico Matters. We will soon be entering the fourth year of USMCA, the trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico that replaced NAFTA. Let me start this conversation with your assessments. Scott, USMCA was described by Ambassador Lighthizer, one of its main architects, as the 21st century standard of trade agreements. He said that it would be a model for others to come and that it would protect America's technology and secure greater market access for American businesses. He also said that it would change the direction of U.S. trade policy to come. What is the good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, in some ways, the Ambassador Lighthizer was correct, but not in the ways he expected. Trade agreements tend to be evaluated as successful if they do three things. One, if they're based on very solid economics and they help economic growth in all the parties. Second, that they achieve a foreign policy objective. Almost all of them, all of them have either under the surface or explicitly a foreign policy objective. And third, if they domestic politics are supportive of the agreement. And so if you look at USMCA, where the surprising victory was, was on domestic politics in the United States. The economics have always been good in North America. We go back to, in the foreign policy dimension, whether you talk about the US-Canada free trade agreement or the NAFTA or USMCA, having an integrated North America from a commercial standpoint has always been in all three parties' interests. So those are not all that different. But what happened with USMCA, that where the United States had been stuck in a partisan, in some cases ideological, nightmare of debate really since the NAFTA, all of a sudden compromises were made and, and conditions were reached, and USMCA had broad bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. That hasn't happened since, I guess, the Uruguay Round Agreements Act in 1994. So 30 years later, he's right. <laughs> That's right. Some of it was breakthrough, uh, but the agreement itself, I think the best thing you can say about USMCA is 90% of it was identical to NAFTA and working well, contributing to the efficiency of North America and having stable rules for our economic integration is, the, is why we can make things together and sell them to the world in each other quite competitively. Ken, before we go into the differences between NAFTA and USMCA, let me get your assessment. 
you were the chief negotiator from the Mexican side. And to put this in context, I remember quite clearly that we entered this negotiation with President Trump threatening to cancel NAFTA altogether in the first place. What is your take? Thank you very much, Mariana and Scott, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. And yes, indeed, as you mentioned, the uh, USMCA negotiation was very different from the original NAFTA negotiation, precisely because there was the uh, largest partner in the middle of the North American equation that was questioning whether there should be free trade in North America. So what we accomplished in the negotiation was important from the point of view of actually preserving free trade. I mean, that's something that it would, on the surface, appear to be simply a continuation of what we had in the in the NAFTA, but that was not so evident when we were negotiating with the United States. We were able to avoid in this negotiation a return to tariff rate quotas, to a situation of managed trade in the key export sectors for Mexico towards the U.S., which included automotive products, uh, agriculture, textiles, and many others. So one big accomplishment is free trade is preserved, and that's a, that is a big deal. Also, we were able to modernize the agreement. It needed an upgrade after 25 years of what Canada and Mexico at the time in 2017 considered a very successful trade agreement, but it did need to have an update in terms of bringing up uh, key trade rules that are essential to today's economy, such as digital trade, good regulatory practices, how should state-owned enterprises behave when they compete with private sector companies. All of those sort of new generation disciplines that were not included in the NAFTA originally, and also strengthening the provisions on labor and environment, right? Making them uh, a standalone independent chapter subject to dispute settlement. So those modernizing aspects are the second element that are are essential in addition to uh, preserving free trade. And also ensuring, for example, agreement on the most complex issues, whether it's on autos, rules of origin, or most importantly right now, dispute settlement, right? Which the United States wanted to eliminate during the negotiation because it claimed that it was an extraterritorial imposition and that it affected U.S. sovereignty. And that's not the case at all. So we were able at the end of 15 months of negotiations to be able to resolve that. So bottom line is that the USMCA is working for the purposes that it was created, promoting trade flows and investment flows. And also, we must realize that despite the disputes, and I'm sure we'll talk about them in a minute, what we have, we are able to preserve a dispute settlement mechanism that is actually better than the one we had before when it comes to state-to-state disputes. In other words, now what we are seeing is that panels can be formed, they can issue uh, final reports. Now the question is whether the countries, for political reasons, will choose to go forward and actually implement those. But that's sort of a part of our discussion today, I'm sure. And so the USMCA is working. It's very important to have this anchor of investor certainty, legal certainty in the long term in North America, because the phenomenon of nearshoring is real. I mean, we're seeing a great investment flows coming into North America. In order for this to be maintained and preserved uh, towards the future, we need the legal certainty that an instrument such as the USMCA brings to North America. One of the things that makes it fun to be part of trade policy is if you've got a sense of irony. And Ken's comments reminded me of how difficult this was at the front of the the ideas that the United States was prepared to entertain just a few years ago. And one of the funniest parts that I, I think is in the concluding section of the NAFTA, there actually is an accession clause. So there was a provision in the original NAFTA, there was enough enthusiasm about that agreement that we, we invited others to join. 
Of course, nobody wanted to <laughs> over all the years. The concluding chapter in USMCA has a withdrawal procedure instead of an accessions Right, and we procedure. won't talk about, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and now people want to accede to the USMCA. <laughs> so it's commonly talked both in the Congress and in foreign capitals. So you never know, but there's always some entertainment value. Let me stress something you both said. That is the importance of having a clear dispute mechanism and to abide by it. Otherwise, what's the point? And one of the difference in USMCA is actually we now have very clear rules, right? With specific timings and agreed upon roster of panelists that can be appointed to settle disputes. And correct me if I'm wrong, but so far it appears to be working, at least in the establishment of panels. I believe three panels have been established. Am I right? One against Canada over dairy and two against the United States, one over solar safeguards and another one over automotive, automotive rules of origins. And now the U.S. wants to bring Mexico to a panel over modified corn or biocorn. There are very other consultation processes that we, we can talk about it later. But now, Scott, what is your main takeaway from the dispute settlement mechanism? Is it working? And why is it so important? Well, I do, I do think it is a very important part of any agreement. You've got to be able, if you make commitments, you've got to be able to enforce them. And when you commit to obligations, governments ought to be able to hold each other accountable to those obligations. So I, I do think it is important. And in some ways, a couple of observations overall. One is the more trade you have, the more disputes you have. And so it's not a surprise that about 80% of the United States' WTO disputes over the years, whether as a respondent or as a complainant petitioner, are with our big trading partners. So, and because there's a lot of trade between the US, Canada, and Mexico, there will always be a lot of disputes, and that's okay. Second, some of these disputes just never get old. For instance, the Canadian supply management programs in agriculture are always controversial. They're always, any reform is feels like a sleight of hand. But I was observing that back in the bad old days of 1970s American trade policy, when we had this unilateral tool for unfair practices called Section 301, the first case in Section 301 was a Canadian supply management program. It was eggs and not dairy. But <laughs> but so, so we're about to celebrate 50 years of fighting over supply management programs. <laughs> and that, that's the sort of thing that persists. Now, I think so far the panels have done a, a, an excellent job. And I also think the United States has not behaved well in specifically in the case it lost in, in auto parts or auto rules of origin. That's a vitally important part of the new agreement. It was subject to a big change. And fortunately, people like Ken, who negotiated these, are still around to consult with and still remember the conversations that were had because it looks to me like the panel found correctly that the U.S. interpretation of rules of origin was incorrect and the Canadian and Mexican interpretation was correct. And in the past, the United States has tried to be phrased as Caesar's wife when it comes to responding to disputes like this. We want to make sure we bring our commitments into uh, compliance with the rules so others do as well. We seem to have lost that interest, and I'm not sure why the, the administration is so reluctant to, to just say, well, all right, let's let's move on because and and use that as a model for saying other economies ought to comply with their decisions if they don't happen to to like the way what the panel finds i'm not sure why we're doing that but it's it's a disappointment 
Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the U.S. isn't complying, do you believe is creating a precedent that could undermine? Well, look, it's just a bad practice. Uh, it's happening. Right. It's happening uh, in the context of USMCA. It's happening in the Geneva dispute over national security and the, the judgments about national security. I'm not sure I understand the objective on our other, on the other podcast I do with Bill Ryan, called the Trade Guys. We've made this point a number of times that it's hard for the United States to be able to expect others to comply with dispute decisions if we don't do it ourselves. But the administration doesn't have to listen to the trade guys. They aren't at the moment. So. Yeah, unfortunately. Ken, as you said, right, it is not unusual for such dynamic and intense trade relationships to encounter disputes. And now Mexico has been called to a panel over corn. Can you explain to us why and what are the mechanisms established under USNCA and what could happen if Mexico loses? No, thank you. I mean, I, I believe, and let me just say that I agree completely with what Scott was saying in terms of the functioning of the panels nowadays. We have an additional panel to the one that you mentioned, which is the U.S. restarting a dispute on dairy with Canada, which is one of these recurrent and ongoing disputes that Scott was referring to. I do believe that overall, you know, we are seeing a mixture of the politics drifting or impacting the trade policy decisions. That is one of the reasons why we have not seen progress, for example, in the autos dispute. I mean, I believe that that is due to the fact that Mexico is being very careful not to pressure the United States under a political calculation, which may or may not be misguided, which is maybe if we don't pressure the U.S. on autos, the U.S. will give us a pass, so to speak, on energy or the issue that you're raising, which is corn. But the pressure is rising in the U.S. We have elections coming up. So this may be a political miscalculation by the Mexican government. And on the other side, I think the U.S. US is being lax about issues such as energy and even corn today, because on energy, they could have called for a panel in October. And on corn, they actually have not called for the panel yet. They're in the process of the consultations, which is the last step before you actually can call for a panel. And uh, we'll see if the US is willing to do so. And that's also for political reasons, because it seems that the Biden administration does not want to cause disruption in Mexico's cooperation on immigration and security. So you're seeing here mixture of how the politics, the regional politics, the bilateral relationship, which is larger, of course, than the USMCA, and it encompasses many different areas such as immigration, security, etc., affects trade policy and the, and the panel implementation. Now, on corn specifically, yes, we are on the verge of a major dispute, which would be very problematic for both countries and for the USMCA, because Mexico imports over 17 million tons of yellow corn every year from the United States. Yeah. So we depend heavily on corn that goes into the live sector, into industrial processes, and a small portion of it goes for direct human consumption. Now, you have to understand also on the Mexican side, you know, with this, uh, the government in place right now, you have a particular group of cabinet members that have been prior to being high level officials for many, many years, they were either environmental activists or in other NGOs that, uh, that were involved in the agricultural sector. And they have launched now that they are high level government officials, a frontal attack to, so to speak, on agricultural biotechnology. So despite the international trends that show us that in order to feed the world, feed our region and guarantee food security, you need agricultural biotechnology, you need innovation. Despite all of that, there is an old style attack on GMOs claiming that they might 
cause harm to human health, even though there is no empirical evidence, no medical evidence, no environmental evidence of any damage over 40 years of consuming uh, GMOs in our region. So the Mexican government issued a decree that looked to establish restrictions. First, in the first decree that they published, import restrictions on GMO corn from the U.S. coming into Mexico. They watered it down to a decree that was published in February that essentially says we will not establish any import restrictions for corn coming from the U.S. into Mexico. We will allow it to be used for the livestock sector, for agro-industrial processes, which is over 90%, you know, agro-industrial plus livestock of the use of that corn in Mexico. But the government of Mexico still intends to establish domestic regulations that would prohibit U.S. corn from being used in the process of making flour or, and tortillas in Mexico. And what the problem with that is that that would be a violation of the agreement because you are allowed under USMCA and under the WTO as well to impose restrictions on sanitary grounds, on sanitary and phytosanitary measures if you have scientific evidence that demonstrates that the consumption of a certain product because of a certain disease could cause harm to humans or plants or animals. This is not the case. It's not the case as it was the case when we had the so-called mad cow disease many years ago right. in the UK. When that was detected, all countries in the world practically suspended imports of cattle or beef products from the United Kingdom. Why? Because there was a medical justification, scientific evidence that if humans consume products tainted with that disease, they would die. And so that's it. You, you cannot sue a country for uh, implementing sanitary measures to protect uh, human health. However, when there is no evidence, when these are just suppositions or allegations that are not backed by scientific evidence to the degree of saying, you know, consuming U.S. GMO corn may harm Mexican consumers. If you don't have the evidence, then if you impose any type of regulations, whether it's at the border or through domestic regulations, you would be violating the agreement. So we'll see what the U.S. does, because as I said, the politics are mixed up in, in this issue. We know that the Corn Belt states in the U.S. are pressuring heavily the Biden administration. And so over the next few weeks, because uh, the, the consultations will last approximately 30 days because you're talking about a perishable product. And that's something that's clearly established in the USMCA. Within about a month, the U.S. will have to decide whether it goes to a panel or whether Mexico will stick to its position of saying we do not want GMO corn used to make tortillas in Mexico. Look, I think Ken made a really good point about food security. Let me get to it. This is, my view is short-sighted on the part of the Mexican government to pursue this issue in two ways. One is, I think it's a, I think it's a loser of a case for them. The rules on agricultural products in the sanitary and phytosanitary standards are, if there's a reasonable certainty of no harm, there's no scientific basis for the block. You can have all the points of view you want on genetically modified plants and, and elements of the food supply, but they've been in the food supply for 40 years and nobody can find the harm. It's like, where is it? Okay. It's 300 million people here eating this stuff. Where's the harm? Okay. And uh, so, but more, the more important point is about the importance of agriculture technology and innovation to feed the planet. Believe it or not, it's an astonishing fact all the Malthusians ought to take heart because we can feed 9 billion people. We actually know how to feed 9 billion people. This was not supposed to be feasible, but it is because of the technology that has been brought to bear in the agricultural sector. But if you stop using technology, you will not be able to feed everybody on the planet. And that's a consequence that 
that is showing up here and there, but it's not broadly talked about. Look, Sri Lanka had a major revolt on their hands because they stopped using modern fertilizers for the tea crop and they got about half the yield that they expected. And all of a sudden, the, the uh, what was basically a middle income, stable democracy went from middle income to deep poverty. And the political backlash was, was exothermic, let's just say. <laughs> so the same thing is happening where calories are short in the world. And what you don't want to do is start making decisions based on politics instead of science that drive you to a smaller food supply. And I think I personally think it's going to start driving elections. Holland was probably the canary in the coal mine on this, where they tried to, once again, it's not about biotech as much as it is about modern fertilizers, which are even more basic to agriculture production. And so there's now a new, the new political party in Holland, which is the Farmers Party, to get away from some of the green nonsense. But these sorts of things are cropping up. They are facing decision at governments. Then, and if you just consider the politics, you may choose wrong wrongly and as a consequence wind up with uh, with food insecurity which really changes the politics yeah the problem of ideology versus science ken you spoke about another consultation against mexico regarding energy mexico's energy policies are certainly not contributing to having a region with abundant clean and competitive energy they are also unfair to the other players and they're damaging the possibility for North America to have an integrating manufacturing sector and also an integrated digital economy, an economy that will re be, that will require tons of energy. Can you explain what is Mexico doing wrong regarding energy and why haven't we moved from the stage of consultations to the creation of a panel? Yes, thank you. Well, I mean, basically what you have is a situation in which beginning uh, essentially two and a half years ago, the Mexican government has been pushing through uh, the uh, approval of certain laws on electricity, on hydrocarbons and through uh, foreign trade rules in, in Mexico, a series of measures that go against Mexico's uh, energy reform of 2013, which opened up large sectors of the energy activities in Mexico to private enterprise, the possibility of the private sector participating, for example, fully on electric power uh, production, on the operation of marine terminals for import and export of oil and gas products, operation of private gasoline stations. You may remember in the past, it was all Pemex. It was all reserved to the state. That was opened up first in 2013 through our constitutional reforms. And those constitutional reforms, which by the way, still apply today because it has not been a change in the constitution. Those constitutional changes allowing private participation in these sectors in the energy sphere were reflected in the USMCA. So Mexico has certain specific commitments to open up as it already had in 2013 to US and Canadian companies. And so the US, it took a while, it took almost a year and a half for them to first request consultations in July of 2022. And then by October, that was the time when the 75 day period of consultation had ended. The US and Canada who had also joined the case was in a position to ask for a panel and they have not. Essentially the argument by the US, and, and I'll go back to something that Scott said, you know, it's as is the case in corn, you know, it's a clear cut case where Mexico is likely to lose a panel if it went to a, to a panel. Because it's very clear that the measures that Mexico is taking to curtail private sector participation 
participation. And in this case, specifically, U.S. and Canadian companies in the energy sector in Mexico violates commitments on market access, on investment protection, on state-owned enterprises chapter. That chapter that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk establishes clearly that you cannot use laws or regulations to discriminate in favor of state monopolies and against private sector participants. Essentially, the chapter establishes the rules that when there are sectors such as the energy sector, where you, you have state-owned enterprises and private sector companies competing, you must have a level playing field and the regulation and the laws that affect that sector have to be transparent for all parties. So that is being violated by these measures that the Mexican government is taking. Why hasn't a panel been called or requested as of yet? I believe it goes back to what we were saying in terms of the political calculation that the Biden administration is making. And it's a double calculation, I think. On the one hand, they are thinking, well, we do not want a situation where uh, there may be no cooperation on immigration, which is an actual crisis at the border and has been for several years now without any clear resolution towards the future. And also the issue specifically related to cooperation on security. As we approach the elections in the U.S., there's a lot of pressure on the U.S. administration. What is the Biden administration doing on fentanyl, on these cartels in Mexico? So these things are very important political pieces that will be part of the discussion in the 2024 electoral campaigns in the U.S. So those are some of the concerns. And the other concern, I think the calculation that the Biden administration is making is that the energy sector is so close to the Mexican president's DNA. As you know, he grew up politically as an energy activist in the state of Tabasco, that there is no way whatsoever that he's going to change his position between now and the time that he leaves office. So in a way, the U.S. is trying to, uh, I would say, muddle through, try to resolve individual right. permits for individual companies going forward on the energy consultations. But I am not so sure they will ask for a panel. I may be mistaken because politically there may be enough pressure in the U.S. to actually ask for a panel. And to tell you the truth, right now, if the U.S. was to request a panel either on corn or on energy, one of the main objectives by the Mexican administration has already been met, which is to stretch the dialogue, stretch the string as long as you can, so that even if the U.S. asks for a panel, because of the time it takes to form the panels, uh, which is about two months and then about a year to resolve them. The results of these panels, either on corn and energy, would come after the Mexican election in June 2024, which I think is one of the main objectives by the, the, the Mexican government. So in any event, you're seeing this sort of uh, dancing around the question for political reasons. And that is why we haven't seen a panel yet. And just to conclude this section, I mean, basically, in addition to the issues that we're raising here, which is, is there a USMCA violations? Yes. Potential retaliation against key Mexican exports to the U.S., yes. But I think most importantly is the issue of how, by creating conditions that uh, generate disincentives for investing in Mexico in renewable energy, you're hurting competitiveness right now of all manufacturing sectors, all sectors in Mexico, in the agricultural sector, agribusiness, etc. Everybody uses energy in the Mexican economy and in every economy. So if you make it more costly, if you go back to using fuel, oil or coal to uh, produce uh, electricity, 
you're hurting your chances in the long term, not just on sustainable development, but also on investment attraction. Because a lot of multinationals today, when they look for places to invest, they're concerned about how to reduce their carbon footprint in their manufacturing processes. And they're looking to invest in countries where you will have access to energy, but access to renewable energy. Because they, they don't want to be faced with carbon border taxes when they export their products that they manufacture in Mexico in the near future, when they export to the US or, or the Europe. European Union, for example, they may face carbon border taxes that will hurt their competitiveness. So, so we have to look at this as a package, not just how the energy measures that Mexico is taking violate the USMCA, but actually how not having a clear path to the energy transition to renewables hurts competitiveness in the region. Completely. And talking about ironies, I mean, the region as a whole could have clean, abundant and cheap energy that will make it so competitive. Scott, let me go back to you and ask your views about the future. I mean, in today's world, if we only measure trade flows, it will probably not be sufficient to say that USMCA has been successful. What will it take from your point of view to retain public and political support when the agreement is renewed in 2026, considering that the three countries will have national elections between the mandatory review? Well, look, the mandatory review I thought was kind of ludicrous when it was first proposed. I'm actually now a supporter of it, partly because our economies continue to change and the, cha the very dynamics of the economy itself makes different issues come to the fore and exposes the old agreement uh, for its age. So Ken made the point earlier in our conversation about the lack of digital disciplines. Well, in 1994, there was no digital economy. All right. <laughs> That's right. We, we believe it or not, we didn't have emails. The, 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 uh, the iPhone hadn't been born yet. So all these kinds of things happen. And because they shape our economic structure and function, they're important to reflect in the agreements. Uh, so I, I do think it, having a periodic review to upgrade and implement the new measures in the agreement is a great thing. What, what would I be focused on in the future? Well, look, the most obvious one is North America has the capacity for energy security. And we didn't have that at the time of the original NAFTA. We all have policies that don't exactly work as well as we like them to. I remember the United States had a congressionally Im imposed ban on the export of crude oil. That, that finally was repealed a few years back, but crazy things like that. Of course, U.S. and Canada squabble over the Keystone XL pipeline. I, every time I read a news article about that, I want to look at a map of the number of pipelines and where they are in the United States and, and then ask the opponents, which one of these should I actually be worried about? Because there are thousands. It's a massive network. But there's all kinds of issues that we make ourselves less competitive about. But by working together, I think there's a competitiveness edge for North America that would be a key priority to find a way to put in place in a, in a modern framework. The second thing that's happened, and this came to light both during the COVID shutdowns and in the recovery, is the importance of supply networks and having resilient nearby suppliers that who are, whether whether it's companies trying to do the China plus one or trying to find a way to manage risk throughout the supply chain, I think there's huge potential within North America for this, 
but it will take predictability. It will take, because it takes investment dollars and it takes long-term sort of far-sighted approach toward infrastructure and investment to really deliver against the kinds of needs that companies face as they want to modernize and make more resilient and secure their supply networks. So those are the kind of things that were not really considered 30 years ago, novel 20 years ago, and now will be essential to our continued progress as the three economies of North America. Ken, let me ask you the last question. With an economy that is deeply integrated with that of the United States, Mexico has a lot to gain from this commercial integration, the relocation of supply chains that Scott was talking about, the quest for res resiliency, nearshoring. What does Mexico need to do not to miss this unique opportunity? That's a great question, because what we are seeing right now is, as I mentioned before, the success of the USMCA in promoting trade and investment flows. We closed last year with uh, investment, uh, foreign direct investment figures around $35 billion, which is similar to what we were receiving at the end of the last administration in Mexico. But it's very interesting that, in my opinion, this figure should be much higher. They could even, at some point, double that amount, right? I mean, we should be above $60 billion or more in terms of foreign direct investment. If combined with trade liberalization, we did the right domestic policies in Mexico to promote the attraction of investment and the retention of such investment, especially when we are making the bet in North America to invest in the sectors of the future. So what we are seeing, I think, in North America, and Mexico has to take advantage of this, is a very important geopolitical moment. I think for the first time, the U.S. and Canada are coming to the table and saying, look, because of this complex international environment, in the case of the U.S. in particular, this uh, not trade war with uh, China, but really a long-term Cold War, you know, a, a race on uh, about technology, what model, what economic model will rule the rest of the 21st century in the world? So the U.S. is looking for Partnerships. It's looking for Canada and Mexico to create a seamless joint production region that can compete with the rest of the world, but primarily with China. So Mexico has a great opportunity because the pandemic effect is causing this uh, relocation of companies. Companies in the 90s and 2000s went to Asia, primarily to China. They're coming back for many reasons, because it's more expensive to send goods from uh, Asia to North America now, because there's a pandemic factor and the risk that there might be another paralysis of the uh, your supply chains if you have them spread out throughout the world. And also because now you know that in order to take advantage of the North American market because of tighter uh, rules of origin, you have to be located in the North American market, right? And also we strengthen to the USMCA intellectual property provisions that make it more attractive to produce in Mexico certain products that require intellectual property protections and that in China you have all those problems in terms of trade secrets, violations, etc. So overall, you know, you have a perfect storm, perfect condition to attract investment into our region and primarily into Mexico. But trade liberalization is not not sufficient. I mean, it's a key element to attract investment, but it's not by itself the solution. So what Mexico has to do is a little bit along the lines of what Scott was mentioning, invest in the long term in education, in workforce development. We need to have enough engineers, enough specialists in the sectors that we're looking to attract, such as semiconductors, 
lithium battery production, high technology medical equipment, which is essential nowadays to attract that investment into our region. Pharmaceuticals, I was mentioning intellectual property protections. Mexico has traditionally not been a, a large uh, recipient of uh, pharmaceutical investments. It now has the opportunity to do so. So it's about long-term investment in education, workforce development, infrastructure. We have a big disconnect between the north and the south of our country. If we developed roads, railroads, and marine ports, basically the ports in the Gulf Coast, that would allow the south-southeast of Mexico to have direct access to all of the products that can be manufactured or produced in the agricultural sector in the south-southeast of the country to reach the eastern seaboard of the U.S. So that makes it very attractive. But a key piece in all of this, in addition to workforce development, infrastructure, is of course energy, renewable energy, investment, for example, in Mexico in transmission lines and electricity. That's something, that's an area that's still reserved to the state. And that's an area where there's not enough investment. You don't have enough interconnection of electrical uh, power facilities to companies, to industrial parks. So you need to have that in the future. I think the future is bright because we have this legal certainty of the USMCA in the long term. So investors are already betting that regardless of who's in power, there will be political transitions. You know, leaders will leave. But what you want in the long term is for the USMCA and for legal certainty to remain. So you already have that anchor. But now you have to complement that with the right domestic policies that create an environment that allows for sustainable development to exist in Mexico in the long term. No doubt, Ken, there's a lot of, for Mexico to do in order to take this opportunity. But I, but I think it is also or as important that the three countries actually abide by the rulings of the USMCA panels, as it is the only mechanism we have to strengthen the rules that underpin trade and investment in North America. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a, you know, USMCA implementation is essential. It is the piece that will guarantee that there's credibility that the mechanism of free trade in the region is working. And that is why it's essential to resolve these disputes, to make sure that all three countries are sending the signal internationally that they're willing to honor their international commitments. I agree with that completely. And Ken, you made the point about human capital which I think is is little talked about by trade people, but probably the most important element of the future and why I think North America has such a bright future is we have, we have young people and they have massive potential to make the world a better place. Yeah. We have the pyramid. Scott, Ken, thank you very, very much. It has been a pleasure and I hope to have more conversations together. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 